0: Actually, it starts on page 34. Yeah. Um, just want to say really quick first, for those of you who have been attending uh, Mass here on, the, uh, on Sundays or any time during the week, you might have seen these laying around all the entrances. Uh, it's called a church bulletin. You, generally, every parish will have one of these laying around and uh, it just sort of goes through all the different events that are going on here at the cathedral and uh for you to take and just so that you know anything that you see in here advertise any events or anything like that you are welcome more than welcome to attend any event this is all very open to to any of you there's a number there's a men's group that meets once a month a women's group that meets once a month there's a uh, young adult group that meets every week and then just all kinds of other events um so please feel free to grab one of these whenever you're in church and kind of see what's going on around the, the cathedral On that note, um, today actually, um, the cathedral hosts a a concert series that usually about twice a quarter we have different performances offered in the cathedral of of, um, singers from really all around the world or different orchestras and things like that performing various kinds of sacred music. Um, Our new season begins today, actually, with a group (laughs) called The Voices of St. Alphonsus. Um, And it's a free concert this afternoon. Um, It begins at 2.30, so we will and quite time for it to run over there for. It. But if we finish here and you want to come attend, you are very welcome to. Uh, just maybe go in one of the doors near the back of the cathedral because it will have already started, and just be aware of that. But um, you're very welcome to attend once we once we finish here. If you just want to go over to the cathedral, just know that that's that's open to you. And like I said, we have those concerts generally about. Um, once every other month or so. So just want to let you know about that. I'll be leaving a little bit early to kind of go over there and make sure that they're all set up and have everything they need for that. But just wanted to invite you, to, if you'd like to attend. Um, and just a reminder to please do uh, just initial, when you get here, if you join us in person, and uh, I'll put it on the live stream in a minute, but if you're joining us by live stream, it is always helpful if you can uh, just type your name in and let us know that you're here. And you can feel, either Doug or I are usually, Monitoring the live stream so if you have questions as larry is going along uh, you can feel free to submit them in that chat box as well And we will uh, make sure that they get brought up All right, any questions I can answer about anything right now? Just one last thing if um, At the end of the sort of introductory email that laid out where we meet and what time and what have you there is a link to a Registration form if you haven't already filled that out It's helpful to us if you can fill that out and um, that way just so we know who's here um, you know, no huge rush, but at some point, if you haven't already filled out that registration page, uh, please do so. Okay. Like I said, we'll begin with the sign of the cross and then pray the uh, the Our Father, which uh, you can find on page uh, 34 of the handbook of prayers if you have that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art, who art in heaven, heaven hallowed, hallowed be thy, thy name. Thy kingdom, kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Thy will be, be done,
1: done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from
0: evil. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Thank you, Father. So um, last time we looked at God's revelation, And so we want to look at today is how that revelation, so by revelation, we mean God who speaks to us, right? So back in in the first class, we saw man searches for God, and that would be man is a religious being, we seek God, but surprisingly, um, he seeks us far more than we seek him. And so that's, so last time we saw God Um, speaks to man, and today we're gonna continue that. And so, God revealed himself, and we looked at last time different ways, in accordance with human nature. So in history, and using um, human beings, human mediators, right, and those would have been um, the prophets of Israel, and above all, Jesus Christ, right? Who, um, through whom God's mediation God's revelation comes to us, right? And obviously, Jesus is the culmination because he's not speaking on behalf of another like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets of Israel. But it's God made flesh speaking to us. We'll have three classes later on on um, what we call the incarnation, God becomes man. But now, before we get there, if God's revealed himself to us, and um, he's not going to neglect to make sure that it actually can be reached by um, human beings wherever we are and um, whenever we are, right? So we're 2,000 years after God became man. And, um, and so it must be possible today to encounter his word, all right? And um, so we hold that that happens in two ways. One way is what we're gonna focus on today, scripture, but another way um, is tradition. And that, so many of you have had a Protestant coming from a Protestant um, formation. This will be a point of difference between Catholics and Protestants, that we speak of two ways by which we know God's revelation and not just one. Right, so very often Protestants go by the slogan, sola M scripture alone. And Catholics say, scripture, yes, and tradition. Right, so it's a both and, not an either or. Questions, this, it can be intimidating in a class like this to ask questions, right, because everybody has a different, but um, don't be intimidated because if you have a question, probably somebody else has it too, all right? And so this is the idea that the apostles, right? So Jesus picked 12 apostles, right? And he commissioned them to do what, right? So this is called the missionary mandate. It's at the end of Matthew's gospel, he told the apostles, go into the whole world, right? And to preach, right? In other words, to teach whatever he had taught them and to preach the gospel to every creature. And so the apostles would have been principally teaching by word of mouth, but two of them, Matthew and John, also wrote it down. Right? And so there, right there we get tradition and scripture. Right? All of the apostles taught orally, but only some of what they taught got written down. But we shouldn't think that the other 10 apostles, or the nine, because... Let's leave Judas out of it. Um, It's not as if they didn't do anything because they didn't write a gospel. They preached and that's what formed the church. So the early church um, didn't yet have the gospels, right? The church for the first 30, 40 years only had tradition and that would be the oral preaching of the apostles, right? And they um, taught it to their disciples who became bishops in their place. Right? so for example, um, Peter began, went to Antioch and um, we, have, we know the person who took over after Peter, his name is Ignatius of Antioch. And he was Bishop there for 50 years and um, he taught orally, but at the end of his life, he was sent to, the, to Rome to be fed to the wild beasts in the Colosseum, literally. And that's what happened. But he, on his way there, he wrote seven letters to seven churches in which some of his oral teaching got written down. I, and we could keep on going, there would be hundreds of examples like that, where the apostles taught their successors, they taught others, um, and, it, and that's how the church gets passed down from generation to generation, right? That's one way. But it, uh uh-huh. Did Paul replace Judas, as no, Judas? No, no, it was not somebody else. It was Matthias. So um, Peter, um, after, um, before Pentecost, but after um, Easter Sunday, um, he, um, they took lots to see who would replace Judas. And they had two candidates, and one of them was chosen, um, Matthias. Paul is an exception, right? He's an exception because um, all the other apostles um, knew Jesus during Jesus' earthly life. And that's what they passed on, right? They passed on their competent their knowledge of him, that came from sharing his life for three years. Paul was an exception, right? Because he persecuted Jesus, and Jesus appeared to him a couple years later when he was on his way to Damascus to um, uh, send to prison the Christians there, right? So Paul is an odd apostle, um, picked out of the ordinary course by Jesus. But yes, he's also no less important an apostle. But Paul wrote, right? So some apostles wrote, Matthew, John, Paul. And Paul had a disciple named Luke who wrote, and Peter had a disciple named Mark who wrote. So our four gospels, two are written by apostles and two by their close disciples, all right? But here's the the key point is that for Catholics, how do we know about what Jesus taught? And so we would say scripture, right, and tradition.
2: Uh, just a quick question before we get past uh-huh. it. Is there a, is, are the titles apostle and disciples, like, are
1: they interchangeable? or is there? A no. Oh, no. Great question. Yeah. We'll look at this maybe later when we look at Jesus. But the short answer is Jesus had a lot of disciples, right? So disciples would be the broader term, everyone who followed Jesus. But out of that group of disciples, he, not they, picked 12, right? That's important because Jesus says, I have picked you, not you, me. In other words, and he gave them a special power and authority to act in his name. And those are the 12 apostles. So there's a difference, right? The, the disciples were 72. There was a, a kind of a wider circle. And then probably we know at the Pentecost, 120, um, 500, heard Jesus perhaps just before his ascension. So there were lots of disciples but 12 that Jesus gave authority. And that's gonna be really important later on when we look at the church, right? Because Jesus didn't just have a mass of disciples, but he wanted to make sure that the church he was founding would continue after him. And that's why he picked the 12 and gave them authority. And that's why today we want to be in the church that's the same, in other words, the same by succession through the generations from those 12 apostles. And here, for example, right across the street, I'm, I never know which way I'm pointing, but where's the bishop's house? Uh, anyway, he lives across the street, wherever. And um, he's a successor of the apostles. Um, I don't know his exact lineage, but that's what, that's what a bishop in the Catholic Church is. Every bishop in the Catholic Church is the successor of a successor of a successor, blah, 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 blah of one of those 12 apostles, but not Judas, all right? And so we think that so basically here's the short kind of take, to to be sure that I've got the same, here's the question. How can we know today living 2000 years later, where to find what Jesus really taught? So if I've come to believe that Jesus is God made man and that he revealed God to mankind and I'm living 2000 years later, I should ask the question, where can I find that teaching? One answer is going to be in this book, but this book is hard to interpret. And therefore, in addition to the the Bible, it's really helpful that there be an, an authority that's alive today that are successors of the apostles, and then a teaching that we can point to as being passed on from like father to son, from um, bishop to bishop, and from the faithful to the next generation. And we call that tradition. The teaching of the bishops, we call, I'm sorry, there's another, we call magisterium. Sorry about the terminology, but you might have heard this. And I'll, I'm gonna talk about it more. That's a fancy word coming from a, the Latin word for teacher. Magister is teacher in Latin. Magisterium simply means the teaching office of the church. Right? And the, so Jesus told the apostles, teach all nations. He gave them an authority to teach. That authority hasn't vanished, we believe, right? And it continues in the church. And that's one of the reasons I want to be in that church that is um, the same as the one Jesus found. We're gonna talk more about this in a later class when we look at the church, okay? So by tradition, we mean simply what the apostles taught to their disciples, what Jesus taught to his disciples, right? Some of it got written down, some didn't. And what the apostles taught to their disciples, some of it got written down, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John, and some of it just simply didn't get written down but was passed on, and we call that tradition. Um, and we distinguish, Yes, yeah, so sometimes you'll hear this expression, apostolic tradition. So when I talk about tradition, you can, that can be easily misunderstood because it makes a difference if it's, if I'm using a, a capital T there or a small t, why do I say that? In Judaism, there were lots of traditions. right? And it, you might have heard in the Gospels, at certain points, Jesus criticizes some of those traditions as not really being authoritative, as being something that um, were instituted ultimately by, um, by human beings and not directly by God. All right? And the same thing is true in the church. There are lots of traditions with a small t. Um, and that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about with the big T tradition is something that the apostles taught that's true that we have to hold to and believe in the same way that they, they did 2,000 years ago. What would be an example? That God, we're gonna look in a later class, that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Why do we believe that? Because it was passed down and transmitted to us. That's what tradition means. It comes from the Latin word to pass on. So that would be capital T tradition, that God is um, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that God became man, that Jesus is true man and true God, perfect man, perfect, right? Everything that's in the creed, God passed down by tradition. But then there are small T traditions, like um, um, Catholics, when we go into a church, we put our hands in holy water and we make the sign of the cross, right? That's a small T tradition because that's, so here's the difference. Small T traditions are things we do. Big T tradition is what we believe, okay? Small T traditions can change. Here's an example. Catholics, you might've heard about this um, about 60, 70 years ago, before the Second Vatican Council, all Catholics used to fast from meat every Friday of the year. And after the Second Vatican Council, that obligation was loosened and we do it during the the Fridays of Lent. But it's not um, required in the same way for other Fridays. We're supposed to do something other Fridays, um, abstain from something, but it doesn't have to be meat. So that's that's a small T tradition that the church can change and that changes according to the times and it doesn't change anything in our belief. Or another example was and in the first thousand years of Christianity, Christians prayed facing geographic east. Uh, and again, I don't know which direction that is. Um, in this room, which direction is east? Is the church, okay. Okay, so um, every um, Christian in praying would actually turn geographically to face east. And what, why, why would they do that, anybody know? The rising sun is a symbol of Jesus and his resurrection um, and his new life, right? Simply the rising sun as um, a new creation. And so that was um, to remember Jesus. But you can see there's nothing sacred, really, about one geographical direction compared to another. So that's a changeable tradition. Still in the Eastern Christians have all their churches oriented east-west and pray facing geographic east. But we in the West, um, churches can be facing any direction, and it's okay. All right, so that'd be an example. Calvin? Oh, no. No, sorry. okay. Yeah. No, no, no problem. <laughs> um, all right, so small tea traditions have to do with generally ways of worship or other kinds of um, practices like fasting, and those are changeable. That's not what I mean by big tea tradition. Big T tradition is what we believe, and that got passed down from generation to generation. And very often it's called apostolic tradition, precisely to show that this is came from what the apostles passed down. I might not always be able to prove it, that, right, that this was held by apostles. But what I can show is that it was held by Christians east, west, in the first millennium, second millennium. Father? The question Elijah- okay, great. Okay, great question. Small T traditions, there's nothing wrong with them coming from different cultural traditions because they are from men and from culture, and that's okay. Things like a Christmas tree, but that's not part of Christian belief, right? In other words, there's nothing, the Christmas tree doesn't enter into the creed. What enters into the creed is that God became man, right? And even something like, you know, December 25th, celebrating that particular day, that's a small t tradition, right? Because it doesn't really matter what day Jesus was actually born on. And that's not what we're focused on. What matters is that God became man and really was born. And really was born in Bethlehem, right? And so that he was born in Bethlehem, that's a capital T tradition. But that we celebrate that in a particular way with a Christmas tree, small t tradition. And yes, those come from different cultural traditions. How can I prove that, a, that, um, that something comes from big T tradition? It might not be so easy always. And that's why the, there's a third way that we can know about the truth. And that is the church solemnly teaching it today. And we'll, that's what I put up here, magisterium. So basically, um, there are three ways that we can know um, that something has been revealed by God because we find it in scripture, because it's taught by capital T tradition, and and or because the church has taught it. And sometimes this happens because there's a dispute, right? So there might be a dispute at a certain point in history, is the second person of the Trinity is the son of God of the same divinity as the father. This is a question that in the fourth century became a burning issue. Um, some person we call um, a heretic means someone who holds um, a view contrary to the church's faith. So someone held that Jesus was less than the father, right? And so the church responded, no, that's not the tradition, capital T, that we received from the apostles. And we can also use scripture to show it, but it's n- here's the point that Catholics, the church, to decide a question like that. Is Jesus the same God as God the Father? And the church can appeal both to scripture and to tradition. And she does, right? Questions on that? And here's the reason. There are lots of Protestant denominations, right? How many? I don't know. And I haven't counted. But people say something like 10,000. And the reason for that is because there are differences on how to interpret scripture. They all have the same scripture. So how can there be 10,000 different denominations? Because I think it should be interpreted this way and somebody else thinks it should be interpreted that way. And I think we should practice this way and someone else thinks that way. And so we split. And that was not Jesus's intention, right? He prayed um, that his followers be one as He's praying to his father. As you and I are one, so may they be one. Right? So he wanted his church to be one. And therefore, he wanted there be t- some way that we could all um, have the same faith wherever we live in the world and whether we live in this century or the next century or the previous century. Right? And that's, um, it's tied up with the fact that he founded a church in which that revelation would reach us today right? Tradition is passed on in the church. Questions on that? Yeah, so the key thing here, sum up, is difference between capital T tradition, small T tradition, small T tradition's practice, big T tradition, faith. Okay, Uh uh-huh. No, yeah, great question. So they follow a different calendar than we do. In other words, and so they celebrate, I I lived in Jerusalem for a year, my family, and we would go to the Holy Sepulchre, interesting. But, so that's the place where Jesus was buried and rose from the dead, All right, so that was. and But that's a place sacred to, not just to Catholics, but to the Eastern Orthodox and other, um, and we had different calendars. So we're celebrating, um, Easter Sunday, and the Orthodox are celebrating Palm Sunday, we, for, in the same time, in the same church, we had the organ, and they had louder voice, anyway. And so that's just, that's multi-tradition, right? That's a, a clear case, because that's just a calendar. That's something about what we do. We all, this is what made it so silly, is that we all believe exactly the same thing, right? And here we are, um, warring over um, the celebration. Small T tradition, big T tradition is that we believe Jesus rose from the dead, right? That's what we're celebrating on Easter, okay? Yeah, so almost all, most of the, the things that we differ with the Eastern Orthodox, they're all small T tradition things, or almost all, okay? Good question. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is the key point, sacred tradition and sacred scripture are bound up together, right? They're not in competition. They go together. Because they both come from the same source and they work for the same end. The same source is um, the uh, prophets of Israel and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, And then um, the fact that some of that got written down, right? Matthew's gospel, John's gospel, and others didn't get down. That's in some way not, right, that's not, Essential, the difference whether it got written or not, right? So it's the same source, but it's a different means of reaching us today. Each one has an advantage. So I mean, I'll, that'll be clear when, after I talk about scripture in a few minutes. Scripture obviously has an advantage because I can point to it, and I can find a passage in verse, right? John chapter 6, verse 51, whatever. And everybody can look it up in the Bible. We can all see the same thing. It's fixed. It was written 2000 years ago or 1900 years ago and it's fixed and closed. So that's the advantage, it's fixed and it's God's word. So that's a huge, very big advantage. Uh, Tradition has an advantage too though and that is that it's not fixed, it continues to live and we need to encounter it today and it can develop as it goes through time. And that also was addressed in that question, and I didn't give a full answer, but I won't be able to until a little bit later, that yes, over time we can come to greater clarity about what God revealed and has passed down because the church contemplates that word century after century. And so we today have a bigger book here, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, than you would have had in the year 100. Yeah. not because there's new revelation, but because the church has contemplated, thought about it, had to defend it against challenges over time, right? And so in that sense, we can, tradition develops and doctrine develops, even though revelation is um, finished with, um, with Pentecost and the death of the apostles, All right? Is that- when we go through this whole court, everything we do is gonna have something to do with what I just said. In other words, um, Paul wouldn't have explained things exactly the same way as I'm gonna explain it today, but I hope that doesn't mean that I'm teaching something different than him, but we're explaining it in a different way because the church has, um, her tradition has been passed on for 2000 years and it's developed, but without changing into a different, it's like the way to think of it is you got Um, A tree you plant in your backyard, right? And it looks totally different, you know, 50 years later than when you planted it. But it's not a different tree. It's the same tree with the same DNA. And the same thing is true of each of us, right? We've got the same DNA, but we look different as grown-ups. So that's the sense in which tradition can develop. Now, somebody, well, how do you recognize the difference between a developing tradition and something that's corrupting it? Um, If it's corrupting it, it'll be um, a different, that's not always so easy. That's why you need the church and her magister, right, to solve disputes like that. Okay, let's go on to scripture. Uh, Oh yeah, let me do one more thing. Sorry, before we go to scripture. So here's the, the Catholic position is that if you've got these three things, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, it's like you've got a stool with three legs. Right? So if you have a, a stool with three legs, it's going to be stable. If, let's assume they're the same height. Um, whereas if you have a stool with two legs, what's going to happen? It's not going to stand. right? It's going to fall over. And if you have a stool with only one leg, it's going to spin around and fall. right? And so the three legs are scripture, tradition, and a living church. In other words, a magisterium, that of bishops who are alive today. Those three things together can make it such that um, the church not splinter and that we can all come to believe the same thing, right? But if you only have scripture, here's the problem. If there's only scripture, this is not an easy book to read. And I could come up to one interpretation. Somebody else say Jehovah's Witnesses are gonna read it differently. Mormons are gonna read it very differently. Um, And even between Catholics and let's say a Presbyterian, or Lutheran still differently in different places, right? And that's why this book alone doesn't settle every question. But if you have those three, scripture, tradition, and the church today, her magisterium, then yes, we can resolve questions and stay together. Okay, yeah? Yeah, it's just that by magisterium, I mean that same tradition today. Because you might think, let's suppose you have an idea that tradition is saying one thing. and, And the current church, in other words, the bishops today, teach something else. You might think, well, I'm really right about tradition, and you're wrong. And so just as there can be disputes about how to interpret scripture... So there can be disputes about how to interpret tradition. And that's exactly what happens with the Orthodox, right? The Orthodox, they rightly hold scripture and tradition, not just scripture. So we're, we see the same there. But what they're denying is the magisterium of the last 800 years since the, or 900 years. Good question. Okay. Yeah, and how does it grow? I mean, it basically, not by new things, but simply the church contemplating um, what God has passed down and then having to defend it. That's how the, um, the tradition can um, develop over time. All right, so just an example. Um, in the first um, 300 years, we don't have a list or, um, a full list of all the books of scripture. And it's only till the year 400 that we get all the churches holding the same list of the books of scripture, right? So some churches um, lacked some of the books of scripture and other churches lacked, had the right ones that th- this church didn't have, but we're missing a different book. And so it took a certain time for us to get what we call the canon of scripture. And that is, what are all the books that should be in this book. Right? So they're like, I forget the number, I should know this. Um, I'm just showing my ignorance. Six, um, there are lots of books of the Old and New Testament. Does anybody know the number? I think there are 23 of the Old Testament. I may be wrong. All right, but see, again, they can be counted, Jews count them differently than, than they're counted in here. But anyway, be that as may, um, knowing that list was something that um, took time to get right. Now you would think that's something foundational. How could that take 400 years to get the right list of the books that should be in scripture? Or another example is how many sacraments are there? All right, there are seven sacraments. We're gonna teach that later on. And that's like something you teach second graders. There are seven sacraments. But it took 12 centuries for the church to be able to define how many sacraments there are. And we could give lots of examples like that. Now, sometimes Protestants use that to show, see, Catholics don't know what they're talking about. They invent things. But we would rather say, no, seven sacraments were there from the beginning, but it took time for the church to um, come to a a fuller awareness of how many, right? Or another example is that God is a trinity, right? That got defined, in the Council of Nicaea, that's what we when we say the creed in church on Sunday, we're saying the creed that was um, worked out at a council in the year 325 called the Council of Nicaea, and then the last part of it comes from another council, 381, right? And so, did the church not believe in a Trinity before that council? Yes, the church believed in a Trinity, but it wasn't as clearly as expressed, and it needed to be more clearly expressed because there were people. Um, contesting or or um, holding something contrary, right? And so the church had to defend what she held by stating it more precisely. Uh-huh. No, you, yeah, Keller. Okay, so, I gotta do the information. So,
3: where, where does the original text, I'm assuming that's in Latin, that, I mean, you guys have- Of the Bible? Of the, I mean, are, are just any original text, text from 400 years ago? Three hundred preceding that that you don't have. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Before, before that, the uh, three hundred you can't you can't list the the books because no one provided that information.
1: Uh-huh. So
3: anything four hundred and after, right? Pretty much anything four hundred and below is watered down by
1: man, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is that um it I'm, the church received what she believes from the beginning. right, from Jesus, and she can't add to that. But what she has to do is think about it. When questions come up. Consensuate. What's that?
3: So what they do is to consensuate what actually came from God and what Mm -hmm. came from man.
1: To make it, yeah, to distinguish, exactly. So the church needs to, when a question comes up that's new, that's posed in a different way, right? It's, we need to answer, it. so just give an example. Today, people pose questions about the morality of something like, you know, um, in vitro fertilization. All right, we're not gonna be able to find that in scripture, right? That's a question, a moral question, but we have to answer it on the basis of God's revelation. Um, so with, yeah, I can't quite answer your question because it's too complicated. All right, all right, all right, it's,
0: a little, it's
3: a little bit obtuse, okay, a little wild. Yeah. And of the Bible? I'm, no, no, I mean of the Bible, yeah, because my mind works a little bit differently. So I apologize if I'm obscure in a way. So let me get this right, because I'm trying to understand this. You're telling me that DNA, biology, man-made ABC123, they can clone Exact copy. So if you can't do it, isn't it a disconnect? As the word, the spirituality will be in it because, if, if my understanding yeah. is right, that God means something
1: specific to you. Yeah. Let's talk about true? this after class. I'm sorry, I'm, is that right? I'm, 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 but here's the 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 key idea: is that it's like a, a tree that's growing. It's the same tree but it doesn't look exactly the same in different centuries, right? That's the the key idea. Let's, I'm gonna shift to the Bible now. Okay, so let's look now at sacred scripture. Sacred scripture is, we said that other way that God wanted his revelation to come to us, and that is in inspired and fixed form. Tradition comes first. Why do I say that? Because let's take the New Testament. The books of the New Testament includes the four gospels. Those four gospels were written um, anywhere between um, 25 or 30 years to 60 years after the death of Jesus. And the apostles had to teach before the New Testament was written. Does that make sense? So the tradition always comes first. The same thing was true in the Old Testament. Uh, the prophet Isaiah didn't write things down first, but the prophet Isaiah would have orally preached or Jeremiah or Zechariah or any of the prophets of the Old Testament. Even take Moses um, that got passed on Israel was basically an oral culture, meaning they not, we live in it, so this is hard for us today. We live in a world of writing, right? Of texts and documentation. That's not the ancient world. The ancient world, right, there was no printing press, Um, paper was um, very difficult to come by, Um, didn't exist right up until the, um, in ancient Israel, right? They wrote on stone and things like that, um, or pottery. and 99% of the population was illiterate. Right? So we're talking about an oral culture. And so tradition comes first because of that. But in an oral culture, tradition gets remembered. Right? And God also makes sure that it gets remembered, because he wants that revelation to come to everyone. Right? So capital T tradition comes first. But God wanted some of that capital T tradition to be written down in the time. Um, of the apostles, right? And that's, I'm talking about the New Testament. And in a similar way, he wanted the, the prophet's writings to get written down beforehand, right? To prepare for his coming, right? And so God made sure that his um, revelation, some of it got written down and in a particular way in such. And so here's the, the, the thing that's um, marks out this book from every other book. There are tons of books, I'm a theologian, and so I read books about God all day long, right? That's that's my job. But those other books, they're about God, but they're not by God. This book, we believe, is both about God and uniquely by God. That's what's unique to sacred scripture, and that takes faith. Because just if you open it at random and pick out here, I open to Deuteronomy chapter nine, all right, maybe that's, But the point being, you can't just simply open the Bible at a certain place, take out a sentence, and see that that's written by God, right? Because it sounds like other books that would have been written at that time, perhaps, all right? And so it's something that we have to believe and can't directly test, right? There's no, I can't take a a text of Scripture and put it through some computer test, and it's, oh, this one's revealed by God, and this other one is written by man. All right. Um, But there's something really beautiful here, that God would want to um, have his word come to us um, like a letter. So that's how we should think of scripture, that it's like a letter written by God to me and to you. But we said last time, two weeks ago, that God reveals himself to us according to our mode. And our mode is... Um, we speak a particular language. So when God spoke um, in scripture, and it got written down, it's in a particular language. Ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament, most of it. Ancient Greek for the New Testament. Right, so that's kind of, but that makes sense, right? If he's gonna write a book, it's gotta be written in a particular language. And therefore, it's also gotta use particular metaphors. All right, what metaphors? And um, so here's the key point, he chose human beings to be like his um, letter writers. And the, uh, how should I put this? God used human beings to compose the books of sacred scripture, right? And those human beings were human beings like us. Let's start with the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel. So Isaiah would be a prophet. So he's a human being. He um, lived um, right at a particular point in history. Hebrew is his language and he had a, um, he was, had a literary education so he could write with beautiful style. All right, God made use of him and his writing so that Isaiah's book actually has two authors, Isaiah and God. And that's true of every book of the Bible. that's what we mean by saying that the Bible is the word of God. Questions on that? Um, and that's unique to the Bible that he's made use of human beings, um, to, uh, to be his living free instruments in writing his word to us. Um, so when we read scripture, we want to read it with that in mind, right? That this is not merely a book like Dante or Shakespeare, um, and we might find it less beautiful, depending on what part of the Bible we're looking at, than Dante or Shakespeare. Um, but it uniquely has God as its author, and therefore is going to be able to speak to us with greater power than any other book. Yeah?: um, are like, uh, uh, oh, two different translations with regard to the King James Bible. Um, so a translation from the you know 1600, as opposed to this translation is, um, yeah, um, recently brought into contemporary English. Um, I mean, there are tons of modern translations of the Bible. right? But there's also a difference in the number of books, and I'll get to that in a minute. Okay? okay? What's the Bible that you were using? I'm just using here. I recommend this, it's the revised standard version. So it usually, it goes by the abbreviation RSV, Catholic edition. There's not very much difference between the Catholic edition and the non-Catholic edition, just um, a few texts. But um, it's helpful to get the Catholic edition just simply because it's got the full number of books. That's the biggest difference, right? And you want to get the full number of books. uh-huh. Okay, I don't know the exact date, but it's something like 1600.
3: 1600. Yeah, right.
1: And so it's not, you know, there's nothing um, from God about the King James translation as opposed to any other translation. It actually is in more beautiful English because people in the year 1600 could write beautiful English, but um, but that also makes it hard to read because they're writing English from 1600, and that very often can cause confusion reading it today. But it, with regard to translation, that's a human work, not a divine work, right? So translators, trans, I, I'll get to that in, later on. Okay, key point though. So just, this is the, the one thing I want you to take, come away from, is that scripture uniquely has God as its author. That's the faith of the church. And you see this every, every time you go to mass, um, the, um, say when the, uh, The reading is, whether it's from the Old Testament or the New, what does the reader say at the end of the reading? The word of the Lord, all right? That's, and we don't do that for, let's say, I mentioned St. Ignatius of Antioch, that great bishop who wrote seven letters on his way to being fed to the wild beast. He wrote magnificent letters, but we don't say word of the Lord. We would simply say word of Ignatius, right? Or Thomas Aquinas, he's my favorite theologian. That's word of Thomas Aquinas, not word of the Lord. All right, and why do we say that he's the author? We say he's the author because he inspired the human authors who wrote their particular part of it. So this book is different than most books because it, other than God, it it doesn't have a single human author. It's got lots and lots of human authors that lived, um, and so, I mean, there's really nothing like it. We have human authors that span from the time of Moses, 1400 B.C to um, John the Apostle who died in the year 90 or or 100 AD. And so he was, the latest parts of this book are from about the year 100 AD, the John's Gospel and the Book of Revelation, right? And the earliest parts are from Moses, um, about 1400 BC. And so there are many human authors, right? But we wanna say the whole is God's word and why? because God inspired each of those human authors to write what he wanted them to write. All right, what do we mean by that? Um, That he made use of them like, so an an example would be, suppose, um, I don't have a secretary, but I have an editor. My um, my wife is my editor. We write books together. And so she'll, I write something or I'll maybe say some idea. And she'll say, I think what you wanna say is this. And she'll write it down there. Right, that would just be an example of how. Um, so we can think of the human author doing something like that with respect to God, the divine author, that he makes, he inspires the human authors to first understand, second to want to write it down, and third to actually write it down using fitting expressions, um, composition. Um, uh, uh, figures of speech, metaphors, etc., cetera, um, to order it in the way that God wanted it ordered. And again, all of this is, we have to believe it. I can't see it or prove it, right? I believe it because that's part of the Catholic faith. All right, does that make sense? Um, so we're not, all of the books of scripture are like every other book, and that all the books of scripture have a human author, just like every other book. In every book, um, part of scripture, that human author had to think how am I gonna write this? What am I gonna put first? Right, so when you write a book, you need to think about um, what's the structure of the book, right? What am I going to, how am I gonna divide it into different sections? What am I gonna put first? What are gonna be my sources? And, and let me just give you an example of this. Luke's gospel, um, he tells us a little bit about what he did at the beginning of his gospel. So Luke was a disciple of Paul the Apostle, and he's writing about Jesus. Um, he wasn't himself a follower of Jesus, right? He wasn't one of the original apostles. Um, He lived somewhere else, right? So he had to do research. So he tells us, um, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us as they were delivered to us from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. In other words, he wasn't an eyewitness and so he went to those who are eyewitnesses like Peter, like um, the other 12 apostles right, Matthew, John, etc., cetera, and, um, and probably Mary, Jesus' mother, because he tells us about the Annunciation, right? So she would probably be among the eyewitnesses that he went to. And so he says, it seemed good to us, to me also, having followed all these things closely, to write an orderly account so that you may know the truth concerning the things that you've been informed orally, right? So in other words, Luke tells us that he decided to write a gospel now, he may not have known that he was being inspired by God. He doesn't tell us, right? That, you know, God told me. He just said, it seemed good to me to write a gospel and to put it in order. And to do it, He basically is telling us, I did research and I went to eyewitnesses and I made an orderly account. In other words, deciding what should go first and what should go second, et cetera. He starts with the Annunciation, right? And Mary and, uh, and so, um, we should think that the other parts of scripture would be similar. That the human authors of scripture had to do what human authors do. And that's do research, think of a composition, and hopefully be inspired from above about um, doing it um, well. But in this particular case, we wanna say that God so inspired them that what they wrote is what he wanted them to communicate such that we can say it's his word and not just Luke's word. It is Luke's word, Luke's gospel. But our faith is that it's also God's word. And therefore, I believe it in a special way, in a way it has a, an infinitely greater authority than other books, because God has greater authority than human beings. Right? That's the idea. Okay. So he made use of human authors as living free. So here's what we shouldn't think. It would be a mistake to think that Inspiration means that God is kind of like whispering in the ear and it's a mechanical dictation that the human author, Luke, just writes what he hears um, come in from like, suppose I'm dictating, you know, to my secretary or something like that. No, that's not right. It's that the human author is the secretary who has to think it through. But as he's thinking it through, God is doing those three things, illuminating his mind to know the truth and to rightly judge and then to want to write it down, and then to write it down in an order, that is what God wanted, okay? Right. So that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written, and no more. And it might not be so easy for us to determine, well, why did God, why did you want exactly that written? Um, And I have to recognize that I might not be able to answer that question, and that's okay, right? Because I'm not God. And yes, you probably will have that experience too, reading scripture, right? Because some parts of scripture are hard, hard in part because they were written um, um, 3,000 plus years ago, right? The Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament. Okay, All right, I think we got that. So a consequence of inspiration, if God has inspired this book, a consequence is it's, it can't be false, right? Because God is truth. And if this book is a book that he inspired and they wrote what he wanted, we can't think that it's false, but that's, that, and I, right, that's the faith of the church. But here's a, the, the but is I have to be rightly interpreting. And so I might think that it's saying something which indeed is very false because I'm misinterpreting that word, all right? So not every interpretation of the Bible is true. The Bible is true, but my interpretation might be false. And it's not so easy to interpret, right? Witness 10,000 different Protestant denominations and other um, divergence that happened long before that. Okay, all right, so we have to regard it's true. That is, all that the sacred authors affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, okay? Questions on that? Let me me say something more about that. So in Genesis chapter one, we read about God creating the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, all right? The fact that the Bible is true, does that mean that I have to think that God created the world in seven or in six 24-hour periods? What do you think? Yes, no? No, no No is the right answer. And the reason for that is because the word day is not so simple as it might appear at first sight in Genesis chapter one. And so it's reasonable to think that what God intended to communicate in Genesis chapter one is that the creation of the world didn't happen zap, um, and it's all complete but that it was a process that unfolded successively. And the work of the sixth, so what happened on the, so in the first day, right? Let there be light, and there was light. What happens at the, the what's the last thing that's recounted on the sixth day? Anybody know? What, would be the, what should be the last thing? And if you were writing a? Creation of man. Creation of man, exactly, a creation of man. That's what gets um, put at the, on the sixth day. Right? And the point being that that wasn't the first thing, right? But that's the culmination. That's what everything else was leading up to, right? And so you can see that there's no contradiction or or disconnect between, say, modern science about whatever, like right? scientific theories change. But let's just take the something like the Big Bang theory, right? That's not in disharmony with Genesis chapter one, right? Because um, Genesis chapter 1 is affirming that there was an unfolding that took stages or eras. The word day in Hebrew can mean era or age, right? And I can give you examples where it means precisely that. And so um, it would simply be a misinterpretation if I would think, all right, the Bible is true, the Bible speaks about creation in six days, therefore um, there were six 24 hour periods of creation, right? That would just simply be. Um, a confusion. Um, all right, so the Bible is true, but rightly so, and there are tons of other examples. So in, another example would be, um, in Genesis chapter six, with the flood, it speaks of God repenting of having made man. All right, that's not so easy to understand. What, do, what does that mean, repent? Did God change his mind? He Okay, but even to regret, in human terms would mean, I, I wish I hadn't done that. Is that the way we were to, I mean, that would, wouldn't that be thinking of God in two, um, as if he were in time? And so, yeah, the answer is yes, that would be. Um, and so I wanna say it's true that God regretted making man in some sense, but I can't think of it in exactly the human sense. And so what it actually means is that, um, there was sin that wasn't in accordance with his plan from the beginning. And um, when um, I used to make pottery, right? And so if, if you start to make a pot and it, there's an air bubble in it and it starts to wobble, what do you do? You crush it and you start over again. And so um, what that verse is revealing is that there was a new start in some way um, at the time of the flood. And that anyway, we'll talk more about that later. So that's just simply an example that the Bible uses figures of speech. And we have to write, oh, here's another one. In Revelation chapter 20, it speaks of a thousand, Satan being chained up for a thousand years and then being unchained. All right, what do I make of that? Um, not so easy. I wanna hold it's true, but I don't have to know exactly what the author meant by that thousand years. Can I think that a 1,000 years simply means a long period of time? Yes. In other words, I could think that that 1,000-year period is, in fact, the whole time from Jesus until today. And and that could be one way of interpreting. So my, my point is simply, yes, the Bible is true, but I shouldn't be too quick to think I'm rightly understanding it. And if I want to rightly understand it, what should I do? I should try and understand it in the church, in accordance with those other two things we spoke about, tradition and the magister. All right, that's what's gonna help us to rightly read. In other words, I shouldn't think of um, finding God's revelation going into my God corner with my Bible by myself alone and just reading that book. That's n- probably, I'm gonna get stuck. Um, because God, that's not, that doesn't correspond to human nature and that's not the way he intended us to come to the truth, right? The way he intended us to come to the truth is precisely through a church, right? That would be living in the sense of having people alive today and and that we come to it together, okay? Okay, very important thing. So we've already given an example of this. In reading the Bible, the Bible, because it's both God's word and written by human authors, writing at a particular time. and Well, human authors make use of um, different literary, um, so the, the technical term is literary genre. What that simply means is a different kind of literature. So one kind of literature is the instruction manual, right? And in an, if I'm reading an instruction manual, I'm not gonna expect metaphors. I'm just gonna expect, right, to, to do what, but if I'm reading um, poetry, that's a different literary genre. Right, it's very, and we, we're, we're good at distinguishing literary genres that come from our own time. Right now, I can tell, oh, that's a comic book. No, that's, you know, a novel. This over here, you know, that's science fiction. And this is a biology textbook, right? And we don't usually get them mixed up. But um, it can be a lot harder when a book was written 2000 years ago, because we're not familiar with their literary conventions. and. Some of the Bible is really hard because it makes use of really odd, uh, an odd literary genre. I don't know, how, how many of you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation? Anybody? Yeah. It's not an easy book because it has its own literary genre, which is apocalypse, apocalyptic writing. And so it writes with a whole different literary convention that we're totally unfamiliar with. And if I take the book of Revelation as if it were, I don't know, an instruction manual for making a a desk or something, um, I'm gonna totally misread it. All right. So this is why in reading the Bible, we have to be attentive to the literary genre. Some of it is usually pretty obvious. And it would be something like this, that um, a Psalm is written to praise God for worship usually. And so we've got 150 Psalms, that's there, but those Psalms are really beautiful, but we don't read them exactly the same way as a history. The Bible's got a lot of histories, but even among the histories, there are differences. So the four gospels are histories, right? They're histories of the life of Jesus. But they're a particular kind of history that focuses not, so the four gospels, if you read them, which yes, I invite, that's where you should, if you wanna start reading the Bible, that's where you should start, right? Don't start at Genesis chapter one, I mean, it's, it's okay to start there, but the best place to start is the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what those Gospels are doing is giving the history of Jesus, but not the same way that we might write if we were today writing a biography. If we were writing a biography today, we'd give a lot of accidental details, like he was born on you know, such and such a time in such and such a hospital. All right, we get something of that, born in Bethlehem. But, um, but tons of accidental details are left out So the Gospels aren't like a tape recording or a video. They're focusing on what's the most important things that Jesus did, right? And those four Gospels tell it differently because you can, I mean, he did lots of really important things, right? And so they highlight different aspects, right? So that's a kind of history, but it's a history that's a little bit different than if I were writing, I don't know, a history of um, George Bush or something from our time, or Roosevelt. Um, What about Genesis? So the book of Genesis is also a history, but the book of Genesis is a history of something that happened before history in the sense of before writing, right? So a history of what happened at the very beginning is gonna be different And so Genesis chapters one through 11 is basically giving the prehistory of the world and we shouldn't take it, again, like a modern history book. It's giving us real history, but told in a way that sounds similar to the myths of other peoples. I'm not saying it's a myth, but I'm saying that's the literary genre. It uses, so just think about the Garden of Eden, right? Other cultures have origin stories that, if you read them, sound similar. Other cultures have flood stories. That if you read, right? So just about every culture has a flood story. And very often there are details shared in common, like 40 days, of, 40 days and nights of rain and so forth. So we find this in the ancient Greeks, the Sumerians, the Babylonians. Um, and so what, should I think this is just a myth, Genesis? No, but it's using, it, because it was written at that time of human culture, it shares qualities of other, that's its literary genre. But should I think it's giving history? Yes, but history that's told in a particular symbolic kind of way or an archaic way. Um, does, that, does that make sense? So again, not so easy to read.
3: Do we know the author? What's tradition teach that who the author is of Genesis and Exodus? And... Yeah,
1: so the, the tradition is that the first five books of of Moses are authored by Moses, right? We call them the books of, Mo- five books of Moses. The Pen- so they're called the Pentateuch. But that doesn't mean that Moses wrote it down. Again, because what we said about an oral culture. So we should think that Moses is the substantial author of the five books attributed to him, but that they were, could have been written down centuries later and that certain modifications could have happened, we can't, n- We can't know that, and it doesn't really matter. What we want to hold is that the final book is what's inspired by God, the book that we actually have today, all right? And that means if it's not all by Moses and other people added to it, they too were inspired by God in that process, all right? So we don't need to know all the details of it because one thing we can't, and different scholars have different theories, and, um, and ultimately, yes, those are theories. It doesn't matter for us here. Okay, right, so there are all kinds of theories out there about the composition of the first five books of Moses that scholars fight about.
2: I'm, I'm reading in the uh, last bit of the text mm-hmm. from, the catec- uh, from the Catechism uh-huh. saying uh, whatever of the popular narrations have been inserted into the sacred scriptures must in no way be considered on a par with myths. So if the um, the language, mm-hmm. what, taking the, the flood story, for example, uh-huh. If the language of the neighboring lands, so the Sumerians, the Babylonians, uh-huh. the Canaanites, if the, the language and the symbology is similar, would it be um, against the magisterium of the church to uh, fall in line with the, the Great Flood story, you know, even though, like, you consider it a myth, like, okay, maybe that didn't really happen, but this is the story that's yeah. spoken in the word, so I go with it.
1: Right. In, in other words, with regard to something like the flood, we should think that there's an historical substance to it, but it's told in a way that um, is similar to other stories. The, the best, I mean, the most reasonable explanation of why so many cultures have a flood story is because there was a flood, and that got remembered by these different cultures. Okay, so, so. But oh. here's the difference. So, let me get back to your question in just a second. Yeah. It's really, it's actually, I mean, I'm not recommending doing this. Time is limited in life. But since I teach this, it was interesting for me to compare the biblical flood story with the Babylonian, Sumerian. Very often in these other tales, it's the reason for the flood is given the gods can't sleep. In other words, it's this, The theme of the story in these other cultures is very often overpopulation. Uh, And that might seem ridiculous. 3,000 years ago, why were they worried about overpopulation? Um, But um, the gods can't sleep, there's too much noise in the earth, so they send the flood. Um, And what's missing in these other accounts is what's at the heart of the biblical story, and that is sin and the flood is a consequence of sin and a new beginning, and it's a symbol of something that happens to us in baptism. And you'll hear about this, if you haven't been baptized, well, all of us will hear about it at the Easter vigil in April, um, because that's mentioned over the water of baptism. That um, like in the time of the great flood, a new beginning came through the waters, so in our baptism. In other words, so yes, it's a story about the beginnings, but it's about sin and redemption. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, the biblical version isn't simply the same as those other cultures. Um, you were gonna ask something.
2: Uh, I was gonna, uh, you touched on it, speaking on Babylon, so I was, I was gonna say, so I should take Noah, well, I should read Noah, but take Gilgamesh with a grain of salt. That's
1: right, take, okay. Gilg- Gilgamesh is a kind of um, uh, comedy, right? It's, it's, it's a work of literature, Whereas we should take Noah as being about my life, right? See, that's the thing. Because it's God's word, God is able to make it relevant to every time and place. So we, the, the Bible was written at another time, just like Gilgamesh. But Gilgamesh doesn't have anything to do with me. I mean, that's a, he's a character in the ancient Babylonian um, mythology. Um, whereas Noah has to do with us. Abraham has to do with us. And David has to do with us. And, and it's revealing something. And so this is why when we read the Bible, even if it's about, you know, ancient culture, ancient Israel or the beginnings of human history, we, since it's God's word, God is writing it for me and for you, right? And so it has a power. And that's precisely because it's always about sin and conversion and forgiveness. Great, thank yeah, Thank you. thank you, all right. Ah, let me, yeah, so it's very important how to interpret scripture. So let's look at that now. So I can't simply, I think we've already said this, but because it's a difficult book, I can't just go into my God corner and read scripture by myself. And this can be frustrating. How do I, um, it can be helpful to have a commentary to read scripture or a guide. Um, My advice for reading scripture is actually to follow the liturgy of the church. In other words, focus on, the Sunday gospel each week and read that carefully and read it as said to me. I'm going to come back to this next week when we look at prayer. Right? Reading it as written to each of us. Um, and then secondly, we want to read it in line with the tradition of the church and read it as a unity, right? Even though it was written in very different times, it's one book, and therefore. Um, I can read Genesis and I can read the Gospels and they go together. So for example, Jesus was asked, so in in Matthew's Gospel, there's an episode where Jesus asked about divorce. Well, in Jewish culture, you can write a bill of divorce. What do you say about that? And Jesus says, in the beginning, it wasn't so. And he goes back to Genesis chapter two with the creation of man, right? And so what Jesus is showing us is that I have to read the Bible as a whole and not uh, separate them. And one last thing, we've got four minutes here. Yeah. there's more than one sense of scripture. So we speak of four senses of scripture. Sorry, this may be overload, but I'll try it. Um, the, the first sense is the literal sense. That, I mean, it's a bad term because you think reading it, taking it literally, that's not what we meant. The literal sense is what the words mean Rightly understood. So reading Genesis chapter one, six days of creation, that would be, the literal sense would be six stages or errors or ages of creation. And we're made at the last. That would be the literal, and literal sense means the meaning of the words rightly understood. And you might think, well, that's, how can there be something more than that? But there's more meanings in scripture than just the meaning of the words rightly understood. And that's because God, as the author of scripture, can do things like a human. So if I'm a novelist, um, and I'm writing a novel, let's say um, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's gonna put things early on that are gonna foreshadow what's gonna happen at the end. Foreshadowing. It'll happen through events, events that you don't see the meaning of right away, but ah, once you finish, ah, I see at the beginning, that happened because of what, it was foreshadowing what was gonna happen later on. God can do that because he's the author of history and scripture. In other words, he can put meanings into Genesis that Moses didn't understand, but that we understand today because they're pointing in reality, in God's plan, precisely to Jesus. Into to the church and to the sacraments. So a good example of this is in Israel, I'm sorry, in the Exodus, God led the Jewish people into, um, um, they crossed the Red Sea to get away from Pharaoh, right? And, that, um, and Pharaoh followed with his chariots and got swept away. So Moses put out his staff, right? The water parted. The Israelites went through the Red Sea and dried land. And then after they get to the other side, Moses followed, I'm sorry, Pharaoh followed and got washed away. That's a symbol of something that happens to each one of us at baptism. Right? At baptism, our sins, like Pharaoh and his chariots, get wiped away and we go through into um, a new life. Right? And that new life was then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And that's the Christian life afterwards. <laughs> and in the desert, they didn't have food, right? And so what did God provide? Manna. manna, which was a kind of food that came from above, not from below. What's that a symbol of? The Eucharist, right? The Eucharist, like the manna, is a bread from above a miraculous bread, that, but the manna fed the body for the Israelites during those 40 years in the desert, the Eucharist feeds us for our Christian life, um, feeding our soul and feeding us with charity. In other words, giving us a power to love greater than I naturally have. Giving me um, a share of Jesus' own life because that's what we're actually receiving is Jesus' body and blood. And so you can see that the manna in the desert was planned by God as a symbol of something that would happen 1,500 years later. Moses didn't know that in writing his book, but God did. And there are many things like that. We call it typology. So that's a a typo, in other words, there are meanings of, of the Old Testament that Jews don't yet see because they're only understood through faith in Christ. Right? And we call that biblical typology, it's beautiful. I'm gonna be talking a lot about typology as we go along. And there are different kinds of typology. It can be, in the cases that we mentioned, it's about what we believe, right? that the manna points to the Eucharist, and that the, um, the, going through the Red Sea points to baptism. But it can also be something about our life, right? So the, um, The Israelites that came out of Egypt, they had to leave behind the flesh pots of Egypt, but they longed after those flesh pots and they found the Eucharist tasteless. And that's a a temptation that can happen to us too. In the Christian life, we can long for um, our old way of life and we can long for actually for sinful pleasures and find um, the Christian life tasteless. Um, And so that, it can be about our moral life or maybe a better example is just simply Christ redeemed the world on a cross. That, that's the model of the Christian life. So that's a moral meaning. It's a, an event. Christ being nailed to the cross. That is revealing to me how a disciple of Christ is also to live. And that suffering can be redemptive in our life as in Jesus's. So that'd be an example of a moral meaning of scripture. And then scripture can also point to the last times, and that would be this. Um, so the flood pointing to the fact that there's gonna be a judgment. So just as the flood um, wiped away the um, humanity in, in Genesis, so that's pointing to, um, there'll be an end of history and, um, and a judgment and um, um, heaven and hell. Right. so scripture can point to those three things, um, Christ and the church, our moral life, and the last things. Sorry, went over time. We'll talk more about that next time. So next time I think we we'll, our class will be on Christian prayer, all right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks almighty God for the gift of your word in scripture that we can make it food for our life. We ask you through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.